All right, come on in and grab a seat up nice and close in the splash zone. I've got my mallet and my watermelons, and so uh, it's going to be quite a show. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, this is not our service. That is at 1030. This is something we do before that called Theological Equipping Class, where we take topics and we dive down deep into those topics to see what the Bible has to say. And this semester, we've been studying political and social theology, which has been very apropos considering uh, the uh, political climate, especially in the United States, but really all over the world. And uh, we only have two more Theological Equipping Classes this year. And then you will get to sleep in and hang out with your kids and get donuts and just come to service at 1030 without having to come to theological equipping. And we'll kick it off again in January. Let me pray for us and then I'll tell you what we're talking about today. Dear God, we thank you for today. We ask that you would bless this time. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, specifically around the issue of work, something that we spend so much of our time doing, something we were created to do. So I pray that you'd bless this time, that you would encourage us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. It's in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna talk about a theology of work and what does the Bible have to say about work? Now, this is an issue not so much in politics, although it definitely touches on politics with, uh, you know, uh, social security and entitlement and being paid to stay at home or whatever it might be, but it's primarily going to be more of a social issue of how we as Christians should think about how we spend so much of our time throughout the day, which is work. So a few things by way of introduction. First of all, because of sin, work can either be idolized or it can be demonized. Okay, you can either worship it where it's all your focus and all your hope, or you can absolutely loathe any type of working to where you become lazy, and that is a result of the fall. When God makes man, Adam and Eve, he gives them mainly two jobs, okay? One, subdue the earth for my glory, and two, make more image bearers, be fruitful and multiply. And so what's interesting is right after mankind sins, you'll see that God curses those very things. The woman will find it more difficult to be fruitful and multiply because her pain will be greatly increased in childbearing. And the man will find it more difficult to subdue the earth because now the ground is going to bear thorns and thistles. It's not going to be easy anymore. By your, the sweat of your face, the Bible says, you will eat bread. It will now be difficult. And so because of that, these are the areas that most get warped in our heart. So if we think about the issue of reproduction and marriage and kids, that is a place where we have a tendency to idolize those things. We idolize sex or we idolize our spouse or we idolize our kids and they just become our entire world. That's a result of the fall. Or conversely, we end up thinking that sex, we end up being perverse with sex or we end up doing that outside of marriage or we end up uh, not being kind to our kids and that's a result of the fall as well. Well, the same thing is true with work. Because of sin, we will take something which was a good gift from God, work, and we'll exalt it. It's our identity, it's where we spend all of our time, it's where we sacrifice time with our family so that we can climb the corporate ladder, and that's idolatry. Or we end up despising all forms of work and we fall into sloth and laziness. We just want to lay around and we want other people to pay for our stuff, we, we want to be a burden to society, etc. and that is because of sin. Second, the second thing is, this is a fun lesson for me to get to teach because I'm a Protestant. To teach a lesson on work as a Roman Catholic throughout most of church history would have been a very dreary, unfun subject because the way that secular work was viewed in the Middle Ages was kind of this junior varsity thing. It was kind of this B team, kind of this lower class thing. There's a famous phrase about the Middle Ages, which was uh, that there are those who pray, that's the clergy, 
There are those who fight, that's the nobility, the knights, and then there are those who work. Those are the peasants. But that was seen as the lowest form of society. If you were a peasant, you were a farmer, you were an artisan, by the way, in the Middle Ages, 90% of people were farmers. That was by far the largest, uh, uh, largest business venture was agriculture. That was seen as disgusting. That was seen as lowly. If you want to do something higher, like be a knight or be noble, you can't unless you become nobility. You can join the ranks of the clergy and then you're seen as awesome because you get to pray and you're closer to God. Well, the Protestant uh, view of work is going to destroy those distinctions and it's going to say all work is equally sacred to God. Okay, we're going to talk about this because this is something that you might know that, but you don't really believe that deep down. At the end of the day, you don't believe that you're honoring God just as much when you're at your job as you are when you're reading your Bible. Even as I say that, you think, that can't be true. Surely reading my Bible is better. You honor God the same, and so we're going to look at that as we get into this, uh, this lesson. But first, let's go over some big things that the Bible teaches about work and unpack some of these. First, man was created to work, and work is inherently good. Notice that work doesn't come as a result of the fall. It's not like Adam and Eve are literally just like laying around, just playing volleyball or whatever all day, and then all of a sudden God's like, I know how I'll get you for your sin. You're going to now till the ground. Mankind was made to work. Work is not bad. Work is inherently good. It was something that was given to mankind before the fall. The problem post-fall is that it becomes burdensome. It becomes way too hard. Things don't go the way they should, but work in and of itself is good. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Look at that last part. That's interesting. The Bible wants us extremely dependent on God, where we don't trust us at all. We only trust God. But when it comes to being dependent on other people for our needs, it does not want us to do that. It does want us to be independent. It does want us to not be a burden to society. It does want us to uh, save and work hard so that we may provide for others instead of just taking from others. Second thing I want you to see, burdensome work was a result of the fall of man. Not work, but burdensome work was a result of the fall of man. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, this is post, the, this is post him eating of the fruit, disobeying God. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. This is where work becomes burdensome. And we see this today. Work is good, but what do you have to do? You've got to fight traffic right? You've got to get to the office and all of a sudden the printer is always on the fritz. It's not printing the stuff when you need it to do. There's some guy you don't like in the cubicle next to you named Ted that's always telling you stories that are boring and whatever. Ted is the worst. But we all have Ted's in our life. They're all there, right? No matter where you work, there's a Ted. There are meetings that could be emails. There are all these problems, okay? You have to work late. There's all these issues. That's a modern conception of the idea of thorns and thistles, that every job you have, no matter what the job is, there will be a bunch of problems in that job, and it's because work has become burdensome because of the fall. Adam originally was able just to work, and things would go well, and it would be a good day's satisfaction, a good day of hard work, but it was not crushing. It was not overwhelming. It was not anxiety-producing, but today work does. 
You see this especially, and I think you're meant to see this contrast. Uh, you know, you have the fall in Genesis, and then right after Genesis, you get Exodus, and what are, what are the people of Israel having to do? They're having to do back-breaking work in Egypt, where they are demanded to make the same number of bricks, though they're given less straw, and it is overwhelming. They are under the lash, being whipped. It is hot in the sun. They're doing all these things, and Pharaoh just keeps upping the ante. He just makes it harder and harder. You're supposed to see the progression of work becoming burdensome throughout the Bible. Number three, Christians should be excellent in their work and do it for God. Now, for some reason, I feel like this is something that we've lost, okay? For whatever reason, we as Christians seem to make the worst movies instead of the best. We make the worst music instead of the best. We don't do things with excellence, and you should do things with excellence. Regardless of what you do, you should be really good at it because you're not doing it for your employer, and you're not doing it for your own glory. You are doing it for the glory of God. For whatever, whatever reason, we know that we're justified by faith alone, yes and amen, and then therefore, we don't try to hard at anything else ever after that in life, okay? You should not try at all for your salvation. It is a gift, but when it comes to your work, you should work hard for the glory of God, not to earn God's favor, but because you already have it. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, okay? That Christians should be excellent in their work, Christians should work hard, Christians should do it for the glory of God. This is not an excuse to be slack or to be lazy or to, uh, to compromise. Let me give you a great quote from Martin Luther, one of my favorite uh, theologians. We'll talk more about him next year in Theological Equipping when we do church history. He says this related to work, and this is unique. Remember, in the Middle Ages, if you're clergy, you're awesome. If you're nobility, you're awesome. If you're the majority, the person who just works a normal job, you're kind of despised. This is just this thing you have to do to stay alive until you can die and go to heaven, or most likely hell in the Middle Ages. And so that's, that, this is a revolutionary idea with the Protestant Reformation where work is redeemed and lifted high. Listen to this quote. In the light of this view of the matter, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I am cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? My master and mistress have, meaning those I'm working for. What has given them authority over me? God has. Very well then. It must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven, and that God must be pleased with my service. How could I not possibly be more blessed? Why, my service is equal to cooking for God in heaven. That's the idea. What Luther is doing is he's saying, you take the lowest job, somebody who is a, uh, a janitor, you take the job of somebody who is literally a housemaid that's job is just to cook and clean, they make minimum wage, whatever it is. And as they're doing those things, as they're sweeping the floor, as they're making the beds, as they're making meals, they're not doing that just for the people they work for. They're doing it for the glory of God. The Bible in the New Testament will talk about this even with slaves, that even if you have a harsh master, that the slave is still to do a good job being the slave because they're doing it for God and not for man, okay? And not for man. Fourth thing that I want you to see, Christians should work hard and avoid laziness, sloth, Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Again, these are generally true. There are people who are super lazy and just inherited a bunch of money. Conversely, there are people who work really hard and come to poverty. But as a general maxim, which is what the Proverbs are, that is generally the case. Proverbs 21.25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. 
Okay? So by the way, uh, the term sluggard is certainly one we should use more often. We don't use it in common society, but I think we should because it's an awesome term. Call your friends sluggards when they uh, don't want to get up or whatever it is. 2 Thessalonians 3.11. For we hear, this is a rebuke, that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Okay? What the Bible is condemning there is those not who are busy doing productive things, but those who just are busy bodies. They just like to rumor and distract other people and be lazy, and the Bible is going to rebuke that. Okay? Number five, Christians should not find their identity in their work, but in Christ. Okay? Now, this is really hard, especially for men, okay? uh, because mankind is called to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and multiply, what you'll find a lot of women find their identity in is things related to their family. They find their identity in their spouse. They find their identity in their kids. They find their identity in whether or not they're keeping up with the other, the Joneses, keeping up with the other blog moms online, whatever it is, and that's idolatry. What men do is we find our identity in our job. You know how you know? You meet any guy, and within about 10 seconds, he'll tell you what he does. He says, the most important thing you need to know about me is I am a blank, okay? This is why a lot of uh, chief executives, when they end up retiring, they die two weeks later. Their whole life has been revolved around, their whole life has revolved around that job, and our identity is not to be in our job. Our job is something that we do, and we can be good at it, but it's not the most important thing about us. It's not who we ultimately are. Galatians 2.20 will tell us what we ultimately are. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you become a Christian, there is no more you. I died at my conversion, and now my identity is in Christ. And what's true of his status is true of my status. He's perfect, so I'm seen as perfect. He's righteous, so I'm seen as righteous. He's loved, so I'm seen as loved. Realizing that your identity is that you are in Christ is enormously powerful because we try to find our identity in a hundred other things. We find it in our job, we find it in our money, we find it in our skills, we find it in our family, we find it in our kids, whatever it is. Everything else you try to find your identity in other than Christ can be taken from you. If you find your identity in your spouse, they can cheat, they can divorce, they can die. You find your identity in their kids, they can grow up and disappoint you and make really bad decisions. You find your identity in your job, you can be fired. Your job can be closed down, whatever it might be. It is only in Christ that your identity cannot be taken away because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number six, Christians should not cheat or steal when it comes to their work. Proverbs 20, 23, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. Are you stealing time from your employer? I, I doubt there are many people in here that are stealing money from their job. At least I hope so. Maybe you're stealing toilet paper or printer paper or tissues. Don't do that either. But what some of us might be doing is stealing time from our employer. If we're expected to work that day eight hours or whatever it is, you should not then be reading your Bible on the clock. You can read that during your lunch break. You should be working hard for your employer. Make sure that you are not cheating your employer by stealing their time because you're doing it for the glory of God and you're testifying to your faith even in the way that you work. Number seven, again on this long list of just random things the Bible teaches about work. There's a bunch the Bible teaches about work. We can't say all of it, so I just picked some random things. So if you're like, Zach, this seems arbitrary. It is. It is arbitrary. Uh, number seven, Christians should not be a financial burden to others, but rather serve others with their work. So this is something that uh, I think is, needs to be said in our current context and current culture, okay? To be a burden to others is given a thumbs down from the Bible, we think that that's kind of a morally neutral thing, right? It's not wrong to be a burden to others. It's just something that happens. That's seen as a negative thing in the Bible. 
The Bible would say that you need to work hard so that you can share. Your job is to be giving to others, not taking from others. Your job is not to be leeching off of others. Your job is to be productive. The hope is that you'd be productive so that you could help the poor, so that you could care for people that can't care for themselves, not those who merely don't want to. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, here's why that's interesting. It doesn't say if you're a thief and you come to Christ, stop stealing. It says if you're a thief and you come to Christ, stop stealing and work so you can give back. You've already taken, now your job is to be giving back to society. 1 Timothy 5.16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There's this idea in 1 Timothy of, uh, of caring for those who are aging. And what it's gonna say is you care for your aging parents first. There are times the church can help. We, I'll give you an example of how this plays out at Parkway. We have a benevolence budget that we can use for people that are really in dire straits, for people that are really struggling financially. But typically what we do first is we have those people ask those in their community group. So if you've lost your job because of COVID and things are really, really difficult, ask your community group for help first. And then if they can't help you, then it rolls up to the elders and we decide whether or not we can also bless this person with some finances. But the idea is to try to not make it a burden to the corporate church first. So in 1 Timothy, the idea is if you have aging parents, you have someone who's a widow or something like that, you care for them. By the way, the the passage in the Bible that says that uh, if you don't provide for your family, that you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever, isn't just about working hard so that you can provide food on the table. It's actually in the context of caring for your aging parents. It's saying that if you're not going to care for those that you should care for, you're not acting like a Christian. Number eight, you should not overwork or oppress those under your charge. Okay, now let me tell you why, why we need to hear this as a church that's generally conservative. You might think that because your view of politics is laissez-faire, free market economics, which is my view, by the way, I think that is the best view, that is my view, that therefore you can exploit somebody as long as they're willing to be exploited. You can work somebody into the ground because after all, they could always get another job. After all, they're deciding to work there, they can quit at any time, and so you might think that because the governmental system is set up to where people can literally work their lives away, that therefore that's okay for you to do as a Christian. That is not okay for you to do as a Christian. As a Christian, you have to take into account what's best for your employees, not what they think is best. You see, the government's job is to free things up, to provide freedom so people can pursue their ends. Your job, though, as a Christian is going to be not just to let somebody do what they want, but to say, am I working this person too hard? Am I paying them a fair wage? Not just a wage that they agreed to. That's what we think of as capitalists. Am I paying them a fair wage for what they're doing? Am I making sure that they're getting enough time off? Am I making sure they're getting enough family time? Am I over-traveling them to where they never get to see their kids? If you are a business owner or you're somebody who's higher up in a business, that is on you as a Christian to make sure that you don't overwork people. People will naturally overwork ourselves. It's why God has to institute in the Old Testament times where people have to take off because that's just what we will do. We are fear-based. We, are, uh, we will idolize work. We will work ourselves to death. God has to make us stop. And so keep in mind that you have some obligation if you're a Christian business leader to make sure that you're not overworking your employees. They'll do it but it's not what's best. Colossians 4.1, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. God doesn't drive you without any rest, so don't do the same thing to those under your charge. James 5.4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields 
which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Meaning, make sure you're paying your workers fairly. Make sure that you are not involved in shady business deals. When somebody becomes an elder or a deacon at Parkway, we present them to the congregation to ask, is there anything in their life that would disqualify them? And one of those things would be if they have been underhanded when it comes to business ventures. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against uh, you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. That's not saying that you literally have to pay all your employees each day. The idea, though, is that you pay them in time so that they are not going without, that they are not, not going without a place to stay or without food or something like that. So pay them at the appropriate time would be the way to uh, take that into the 21st century, not that you have to literally pay them daily. Malachi 3.5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Notice that if you oppress those under your care, you don't pay them fairly, you are in the same list as adulterers and sorcerers, okay? It's a big deal to God. And number nine, you should plan ahead with humility. James 4, 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there uh, and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's not wrong to plan ahead. It's wrong to plan ahead like your God and you can control everything. So you should plan ahead when it comes to your work, it comes to your business. What you can't do is what I hear people do all the time, which is, well, here's what I'm going to do. After I finish college, I'm going to move here, and I'm going to work for this many years here, and then I'll probably get my master's then, and I'll move here, and I'll do this. And I just think, you're going to die in a week probably, right? You have no idea. You're a mist. Your life is not important. You vanish. That's something to keep in mind during this weird season. This is the first generation in world history that's having to confront their mortality, and we are not doing well. Okay? We are responding in absolute cowardice because we don't realize we're a mist. You're going to die. This is going to happen. You don't get to control anything in your life. So it's not wrong to say, I'm planning on doing this, okay? or I would like to do this, or this is the direction we're moving. All that is fine. What this text is talking about, by the way, is also a matter of the heart. It's not that you literally have to say the words, if the Lord wills. I've met those people. That's called witchcraft. That's a mantra. That's like when a Muslim mentions the name Muhammad and says, blessed be his name, or something like that. You don't have to do that. It's not, I'm going to go to the grocery store, if the Lord wills. I could die in a car wreck. Don't get weird with it. It's a condition of the heart is what it's dealing with. It's saying, as you plan ahead, are you planning ahead like you control the cosmos, or are you planning ahead wisely, knowing that God controls the cosmos, okay? So plan ahead. Be smart. It's not against planning for the future. It's against you thinking that you get to control everything. So keep that in mind. Everybody good on those nine points? I know, you know, when we're, when we're talking about abortion or transgenderism or whatever, the lessons are nice and spicy and we get in here and I'm like, cubicle, and so it's not as exciting. But this is very, very relevant, very, very important because this is how we spend most of our waking hours, working one way or the other, okay? And whether it's in the home or out of the home. Let me mention something about the Protestant work ethic. I think this is really important. So, Why did the United States flourish to eventually become the most powerful nation on earth? A lot of that has to do with our founding, that we were founded by 
pilgrims and then later, uh, you know, uh, Puritans. They're not the exact same group, so again, we'll talk about that in church history. But they have a certain work ethic that is different than you had throughout the Middle Ages, and it is a, a strong work ethic, that they are working hard, they are working long hours, they are making a bunch of money, they are doing things really, really well, and that type of thing continues to today. And so the reason that uh, countries that uh, have a stronger Protestant influence are typically wealthier and doing better is directly related to this teaching in Protestantism. Few things. A uh, sociologist slash philosopher named Max Weber wrote a book in 1905 called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, and it was a very popular book, and here's what he argued, and he's not exactly correct. What he argued is the reason that the Puritans worked so hard and Protestants worked so hard was actually out of fear, that they believed in election, that God elected people either for salvation or that he reprobated people for condemnation, and so one of the ways that you could show that you're elect is by faithfulness by working hard. So the thesis he puts forward in that book is simply that the reason that you have what we consider today to be the Protestant work ethic was based on fear. I need to show that I'm elect by being really, really faithful, which means I need to work my fingers to the bone to show that God has chosen me, okay? The, the reason that, that is not correct is because that is not the reason that they give for why they're working hard. We have a bunch of writings from Puritans. We have a bunch of writings from different Protestant groups. That's not why they're working so hard. The main reason that they're working hard is simply because they believe it's a way to worship God. They're not doing it out of fear. They're doing it out of faith. God is in charge of the whole world and no work is menial to God. God loves where he created mankind to work. Work in and of itself is good. And so if that's the case, we're going to redeem work for the glory of God. No longer will we just worship on Sundays and for the rest of the week waste our time doing secular work. No, all of the week will be worship. Everything that we do will be worship. We will farm to the glory of God. We will write books to the glory of God. We will be doctors to the glory of God, whatever it might be. And so that is something that caused what what we think of today as the Protestant work ethic, but it wasn't based on the reason Baber thought it was, fear of not being elect. I'm sure there was some of that. It was primarily based on a desire to be faithful, realizing that if God is the one that controls all of the world, then to explore his world, to do science, to do these kind of things is a way to honor God. It is a way to honor God. So to say it another way, if you want America to be awesome, you have to make America Protestant again, okay? That's what, that should be your thing. You should have a MAPA, MAPA hat. Make America Protestant again. That's gonna be the solution to actually uh, uh, help these things. Next, If you hear nothing else in this lesson, please hear my tirade of what I'm about to say, because this is super, super, super important. All work, even secular work, is a form of worship, okay? All work, even secular work, is a form of worship. Let me tell you why this is really important. We have a tendency in our mind to think that some things are Christian and some things are neutral, do we not? We think some things are worshipful and then other things are just normal life. So let's name some things that we think of as explicitly Christian things. Praying, Praying. great, what else? Reading the Bible, excellent, what else? Going to church, what was it? Yes, yes, uh, something that has Christian like in its title, like a Christian radio station or a Christian movie, what else? Missions, yes, you guys are crushing it. You see how much we think this way, right? What are the religious things? These things, right? We think these things are religious. These things are sacred, would be the phrase. And then we think all the rest of life is what is called secular. Let's name some just neutral slash secular things. Yeah, playing football. Golf. Golf. 
Being a truck driver. What is it? Eating. Eating. Yes, that's right. Right? Everything else. I mean, there's a bunch in this category. We can eat. Sitting in a chair. There could be all kinds of things, right? Now, what we do is we think these things over here are sacred. These are holy. These honor God. These things over here, though, are just neutral. They're the things we do in the meantime because we have to survive so that we can get back to Sunday to really worship God. And what the Protestant reformers are going to do is they're going to say there is no sacred secular divide. To say it another way, nothing is neutral. There are things that are sin. Christians stay away from those. But things that are not sin, everything else belongs to God. Everything else. Jazz music belongs to God. Playing football belongs to God. Driving a truck belongs to God. And here's what you need to hear that you don't believe, but I want you to believe it. They honor God just as much as being a pastor, just as much as being a missionary, just as much as reading your Bible. We don't think that. We think I can honor God if I become a missionary and die in Africa. Yes, that will certainly honor God. You can also honor God in the way that you respond to emails. You can also honor God in the way that you teach in a school. You can also honor God in the way that you uh, do business deals for the glory of God where you're not ripping people off and you're giving them a fair deal. There is no sacred secular divide. Let me say it another way. How did Adam and Eve worship God before the fall? Yeah, they're loving God, but what actions are they doing? Gardening, working, having a family. These kind of things. How does a squirrel glorify God? God made everything for his glory. The stars, the sky, the trees. How does a squirrel glorify God? Does it raise its little squirrel hands in worship? Does it read its little squirrel Bible? Okay. No, it just bees a squirrel, to use terrible English. That's how it glorifies God. As it's running around going nuts, that's what I say with a squirrel because it's always hiding the acorns and stuff. As it's just being a squirrel, avoiding traffic terribly, it does it to the glory of God because it's doing what God designed it to do. You were designed to work. There is no sacred secular divide. Everything you do can be done to the glory of God. Do you believe that? Because here's why this is so important. If you understand what I just said, it gives your life meaning. No longer are you just drudging through work to be a weekend warrior and then eventually die and go to heaven. You realize this honors God. It also means that you're free to pursue jobs that are not sinful that you want to pursue. I've met several people that get into ministry out of guilt. They think, well, I most want to honor God, so it must be more honoring of God to be a pastor. No, okay? You honor God with whatever field and whatever talents God has given you. We need more godly people in the workplace. We need more godly people in politics. We need more godly people in academics. We need godly people to be salt and light wherever God has called them to be. And so when you realize this, all of a sudden you just don't go to work which you hate. You realize this honors God. This is something that brings God glory, okay? Let me give you some quotes that I think are really, really powerful here. Tim Keller says, no work is menial. Jesus came not as a philosopher or a general, but as a carpenter. Another guy, Martin Luther, again, maybe you've heard of him, says this. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, or as we would say, sacred and secular, as they call them, except that of office and work. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike, consecrated priests and bishops. And everyone, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other, that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. There are no priests and lay people. If you're a Christian, you're already a priest. If you're a Christian, you're already a saint. That's what we believe in the the priesthood of the believer. Me as a pastor and you as a pastor are not different in God's eyes. My vocation's different, but certainly not my uh, status And I'd probably uh, bet that you're probably more holy than I am. I don't know if you've ever heard some of the comments that I make off the cuff, but I could probably tell you that you're a better person, okay? 
So what Luther is trying to say, though, is that if you're a cobbler, you're a shoemaker, you're whatever it is, you glorify God. You're a priest in that profession for the glory of God. Gene Veith, who's a theologian that I don't love on a lot of things, but I love this quote from him. God gives us this day our daily bread through the vocation of farmers, millers, bakers, and, we would add, the factory workers, truck drivers, grocery store employees, and the hands that prepared our meal. God creates and cares for new life by means of the vocations of mother and father, husband and wife. He protects us by means of police officers, judges, the military, and other Romans 13 vocations of those who bear the sword. God brings healing not primarily through miracles, but through the vocation of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and other medical vocations. God teaches through teachers, conveys his word through preachers, gives the blessing of technology through engineers, and creates beauty through artists. God works through all the people who do things for us day by day, and he also works through us in whatever task, offices, and relationships he has called us to do. Is that good? That's so good. Look at this next one. Alistair McGrath talking about John Calvin's view of work. John Calvin, by the way, capitalism starts with John Calvin. You might not know that. The idea of capitalism begins at the Protestant Reformation, specifically with Calvin and his emphasis on work being good, okay? The idea of a calling or vocation is first and foremost about being called by God to serve him within his world. Work was thus seen as an activity by which Christians could deepen their faith, leading it on to new qualities of commitment to God. Activity within the world, motivated, informed, and sanctioned by Christian faith was the supreme means by which the believer could demonstrate his or her commitment and thankfulness to God. To do anything for God and to do it well was the fundamental hallmark of an authentic Christian faith. Diligence and dedication in one's everyday life are, Calvin thought, a proper response to God. Now, let me give a clarifier before going on to some other questions about work. When I say, do your work for the glory of God, I don't mean that you make it cheesy Christian. Okay? Doing your work for the glory of God is not putting a fish bumper sticker and ichthus on the back of your car because you're a truck driver. That's not doing something to the glory of God. That just makes people mad when you cut them off in traffic and it makes them hate God. Okay? Being a Christian does not mean you have to put little, if you're a Christian cobbler, you don't put little crosses on all your shoes. Uh, sending an email to the glory of God does not mean you have something in your signature line, which is some like real long quote from Malachi or something. That's not what it means to do things for the glory of God. Here's what it means to do it for the glory of God. Just doing it well. Just doing it in and of itself glorifies God, okay? When, again, when you say, okay, I'm a shoe cobbler, so to do it for the glory of God, I'm gonna put little crosses on my shoes, you're making the secular sacred divide again. You're saying just cobbling a shoe doesn't worship God. It's only if I put this stamp on it that it does. And I'm saying, no, everything that is not sin glorifies God, okay? Neutral things belong to God, as do what we think of as sacred things because they're actually all sacred, so realize that uh, being a Christian in your workplace doesn't just mean you evangelize your coworkers. Yes, please do that as well. It just means that you be faithful. It just means that you respond to your emails on time and graciously. It means that you show up to the meeting and pay attention. That's what it means to glorify God in your work. Not that you have to wear the Christian t-shirt when you do it. It's simply that you be faithful. Let's go over some other questions about work. This is where it'll get practical. This is where the rubber will meet the road. Am I working too much? That's a question you'll have to ask. Am I working too much? There's an objective answer to that question, okay? And here's how you know whether or not you're working too much. Are you sacrificing other things God has called you to do? There's nothing in the Bible about how many hours you can work a day. There's nothing in the Bible about how hard you can work. You can work as hard as you want to as long as you're not sacrificing something that God has called you to do. So if you wanna work a bunch, you wanna get that business up and going, go for it. But if in so doing, you're neglecting Bible study, 
you're neglecting attending church, you're neglecting hanging out with your family, you're neglecting discipling your kids, then you're working too much. So the issue is never, to say it another way, that you're working too much. It's always that you're not doing something else God has told you to do. Does that make sense? Okay. Second thing, is it inherently good to be poor or bad to be rich? The answer to that is no. We live in a society that assumes that if anybody has money, by default, they're evil. The problem with that kind of thinking is then God is the most evil being in the universe because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? So there's nothing inherently good about being poor, nor is there anything inherently bad about being rich. There are unrighteous poor people that through drug use and bad decisions have gotten there. And there are people that have made a bunch of money righteously and they give a bunch away. They give to the poor, they give to the church, they give whatever it is. So the issue is not the money that you have, it is the heart with which you have it. That's really Jesus's critique against the rich young ruler. He doesn't go to the rich young ruler and say, it is inherently bad for you to have money. What he goes to the rich young ruler and he says, are you willing to sell all that you have because I'm better? Do you see me as better than money? And the rich young ruler says, no, I don't. I'd rather have my stuff than you. That's the issue. So again, you can be righteous poor or unrighteous poor, just like you can be righteous rich or unrighteous rich. This is why any social programs to just generically help the poor won't work because it doesn't distinguish between righteous poor and unrighteous poor. Some people are poor just because of life has dealt them a bad hand. Some people are poor because, you know, they got cancer and it took up all their money and their spouse died and they're just poor. Those are those you are to help. But there's also unrighteous poor, people who through laziness or bad decisions or sinful decisions become poor. And so you have to address those groups differently. Next, on other questions about work. Can you work for a company who supports unchristian things if you are a Christian? My answer to this has to be yes or none of us can work. Okay? We live in a broken pagan society just like Christians did in the first century. And so it all depends on what you mean. If you say this, Zach, can I work as a cashier at Home Depot even though Home Depot supports these evil agendas? Sure, you can't personally support them, but you just happen to work for a company and then when the fat cats decide what they want to stand for of that company, you're not responsible for that. If it's a neutral company, meaning it's, uh, there's nothing inherently sinful or bad about selling you know, construction products, something like that, okay? You may not work for like a company that I mean that, is, that the actual job is involved in sin. You may not work for a strip club. You may not work for a Planned Parenthood. You may not work for something like that. So there's a difference between a job and the job is to commit sin versus the job is something that you do to the glory of God and other people you work for take their money and they use it in sinful ways. Remember, every single one of you in here pays taxes to the U.S. government, and that money is used for some righteous things and some evil things. The same is true with whatever company you work with, okay? You can work at Target, and they will use some of their money to support bad things. That doesn't mean you're sinning by working there. Now, if they come up to you and they say, you must wear a rainbow face mask to support LGBTQ, then you as a Christian have to say, I can't do that because now I'm personally doing it. So it's okay to be a Christian in a lost world, this is why Paul will have to say in 1 Corinthians that uh, when he says to be away, get away from those who are sexually immoral, he has to say, not at all the sexually immoral of this world or else you'd have to get out of the world. He says, stay away from those that profess to be Christians that are walking in sexual morality. So it is not wrong for you to work for a company and the company happens to support evil things. It is wrong for you to directly support them and it is wrong for you to work for an industry that is inherently sinful, okay? To work for an industry that is inherently sinful. Number four, can a woman work outside of the home? This is not a question you would have even had to ask for all of church history, but for some reason today you have to, uh, to ask it. Let me mention a few things here. First of all, 
you, biblically, are not required to get married or to have children. If it is a command for you to get married or have children, then Jesus is a sinner. Jesus is metaphorically married to the church, but he never took a physical human wife. The Apostle Paul never got married or had children. So you are not required, biblically, to get married or have children. You can be single. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to say, for some things in life, it's better to be single. That's a part of my Bible. I just kind of scratch it out. I'm like, that's not for me. I don't have the gift. Whatever the gift of singleness is, I have the opposite of that, because I've been ready to get married since I was like, you know, four or something, okay? So... Most people will get married, but some people have what Paul does call a gift, the gift of singleness, and the Bible's gonna say sometimes that's better. Not that it makes you closer to God, but that it can be practically easier to do certain things that God's called you to do when you're not having to worry about a family. So if you are someone who is a woman and you are single and you say, I don't want to get married, I want to work, biblically you can do that. Not only do we have women in the Bible who work like uh, Lydia and these kind of things, we have the Proverbs 31 woman who has several jobs. She sells belts, she's a fashionista, She sells real estate. She does all these kind of things, okay? So it is not wrong for a woman to work, especially if the woman is single and does not have a family that she has certain duties to that family. If a woman is married or has kids and or has kids, it is also not sinful for her to work, but please listen to what I'm about to say. She may not sacrifice her primary duty for a secondary duty. She may not sacrifice her primary calling for a secondary calling. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Proverbs 31 woman gets up early, provides for her family, the table is set, she honors her husband, she loves her kids, and then when she has free time, she's doing real estate and she's doing selling and she's doing these other things. So the job is not the problem. The problem comes when a woman who's married and has kids, whatever it may be, sacrifices the family for the sake of the job where she's gone all the time because she's a traveling businesswoman and her husband never sees her and her kids never see her, that's then the problem. So to say it another way, you can have a job as a woman as long as you are not sacrificing the primary things that God has called you to. I would say the same thing with a man from the other side. I've been asked sometimes, can a man be a stay-at-home dad? And it depends on what you mean by that. If you have already followed God's command to provide for your family, you're independently wealthy, you're an inventor, and you come up with millions of dollars, sure, you can stay home with your kids as much as you want. What you may not do is get rid of your responsibility to provide for your family and pawn that off on your wife so that you can just stay home. So you have to think about primary and secondary responsibilities. The primary responsibility for a wife and mother is to be a wife and a mother. And secondarily, she can have a job as long as that's not taking too much away from that. The primary job of the husband is to be the one who provides, protects his family. If that's already taken care of, then he can do the secondary thing of doing more staying home during the day kind of stuff. So you need to keep that in mind. If you are a single woman, you can work as much as you want. If you are married and or have children, then you will have to always realize that those things are gonna be your primary calling before you pursue this secondary calling, okay? Number five, should I get a new job if mine is really bad? Yes. The reason I say that is some people feel guilty. They say, okay, Zach, I'm supposed to do my job for the glory of God, so though I hate it with every fiber of my being and I want to kill myself every day, I'm gonna do it for the glory of God. Yes, Keep doing it for the glory of God, but find a new job. That's okay too. It's okay to be faithful in the job you hate now as you look for a better job. So we're not just saying make life more difficult than it has to be. Whatever job you find yourself in, do it for the glory of God. But there's nothing wrong or evil or selfish about wanting to have a better job, especially if that job provides you with things that are better for you spiritually, more time with your family, uh, that kind of stuff, more time to rest, etc. Number six, how do I know what job God wants me to have? How do I know what job God wants me to have? Let me quote Augustine to you. Love God and do what you want. Love God and do as you will, okay? 
As long as your job is not sinful, I want to own a strip club. No, God does not want you to have that job. Thus saith the Lord, I'm telling you. He does not want you to have that job, okay? But if it's something that's not sinful, do what you want for the glory of God. You see, the reason the Bible's gonna say whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God is God is saying, if I've not put it in my word, I've given you the freedom for you to choose what you want to do. So pick the one you want and do it to the glory of God. This is the same way you should make decisions everything in life. If God has not told you what to do on a certain thing in the Bible, where to go to college, what job to take, whether to move to this new city, here's what you do. You ask smart people what they would do, you pray about it, and then you walk with open hands. You pick the one you want and you just start walking towards it. You don't wait for God to write the name of the city in the clouds, okay, and test God. Don't do that. Instead, God wants you to just pick. So start walking towards that direction with open hands, and if God closes the door, he's closed the door. If he opens another door, he opens another door. You only get in trouble when you start wrapping your hands around it and you're like, I'm gonna make this happen. And God has to start breaking your fingers to get you to let go of the stuff. But if you're walking with open hands and you're just trusting God, pursue the job that you want to pursue. There's a lot of freedom in that. Augustine's love God and do what you want, I think is one of the most freeing quotes in church history. Well, I wanna cheat on my wife. No, 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 no. Love God and then do what you want. Assuming it's not sinful, do as you will. You are not bound by things that are not in Scripture, either implicitly or by logical implication, okay? Or by logical implication. Number seven, how do I know if I'm being lazy? This is a good question. How do I know I'm being lazy? A few thoughts on this. First of all, ask other people. Ask other brothers and sisters in Christ. Am I being lazy? Typically, other people can see our flaws easier than we can. We have blind spots. Another thing to ask yourself is, am I constantly behind? Am I constantly, uh, you know, turning in work stuff late? Am I never getting back to emails? Is there a project that I was given that, you know, is now a month behind or something like that? Now, sometimes it's because you're being worked too hard, but other times it's just because you are not working as hard as you should. It's going to depend. I think people that wrestle with laziness know that. I think that most of them know that. But I think the easiest way to know is simply to ask somebody, am I being lazy? Sometimes people are behind in their work not because they're lazy at all, they've just got too much work. We've all been there, okay? Other times people are behind in their work because they're coming in late and they're slacking off and they're you know, taking extended lunches and they're whatever it might be, okay? Whatever it might be. Number eight, this is one you're gonna have to wrestle with in your heart for the rest of your life. This is not an issue that will ever go away, number eight. Am I working for the glory of God or to build my own kingdom? Am I working to the glory of God or to build my own kingdom? Because those things, a lot of times, will go together, okay? So if you are doing a really good job at your work, you probably are a mixed bag of motivations, as we all are because we're sinners. You're probably working really hard for God's glory, but you're probably also working really hard for your glory. The solution is not to be lazy. The solution is not to stop working hard. It's to simply repent when you need to and continue working for the glory of God. Every time we do something, even righteous things, we also have some little, a little bit of sinful motivation, right? If I want to help a homeless person, I also want to feel good about myself and get the Holy Spirit off my back, right? So we, we, when we do things, even good things, a lot of times we also have some negative motivations. When I get up to preach, I want to glorify God, I want Christ to look beautiful, and I want people to get saved, but I also a little bit want people to like me. I want people to think I'm awesome. Well, is the solution then to not preach? No, it's to repent where I see sin in my heart and it's gonna be a lifelong process. It's gonna be a lifelong process. That's the same way with whatever your job is. You're probably doing it partially from a motivation of glorifying God, but partially out of greed, partially wanting to love God, partially out of wanting to be awesome, wanting to be known, wanting to make a name for yourself. 
If you're a mom of wanting to be a better mom than the other moms, the other moms don't know as much I know about schooling, the other moms don't know as much I know about caring for kids or disciplining kids, we always take these good things and then we try to exalt ourselves as if any of our talents have come from us anyway. They all come from God. And then number nine, last one. When not at work, am I still working when I should be playing or resting? Now, listen to this one because we do a terrible job at this in our society because of the invention of things like the internet and the smartphone, etc. For most of world history, you would work and you would work hard. And then there were not electric light bulbs. So once it started getting dark, you would go home. And then life was awesome. You would eat with your family with long meals and you would converse with friends and you'd play with your kids. And then after the kids go to bed, you could read by candlelight, you could talk with your spouse, you could be intimate with your spouse. You had many, many hours of not having to work. You were completely unplugged. What happens today? You work too long and then you get home and you're checking your phone and you're checking your phone at the dinner table, and you're checking your phone later on, and you have to pause the TV so you can check your phone. You're already trying to do one entertaining thing, but there's too many screens. You're always on the call. You can always get a call. You always have to send out that email late. You always have to work on a weekend. That will drain your soul. As D.A. Carson says, don't fritter. When you work, work hard, and when you quit, quit completely. Quit completely. When you work, you should be completely involved in your work, not distracted. After you're done working, you should not be thinking about work at all. And you say, but Zach, I can't do that. It's 2020, it's 2020, I know. So you're going to have to make some intentional changes in your life or you're gonna drive yourself nuts. You're not gonna be there. The first time your kid draws a picture of mommy and daddy and you have a phone in your hand, it's gonna break your heart, okay? So if that means you need to change your job because they're asking you to be on 24 seven, change your job. I promise you it's better to make less money and be happy, okay? Do whatever you need to do to find time to rest, to find time for recreation, to find time to spend time with your family. You will not, on your deathbed, wish you had spent more time sending emails. You won't. You think that now, but you won't. You will wish you had spent more time with friends, more time playing with your kids and taking them to the park, more time talking to your spouse, more time having a delicious glass of wine around a dinner table and laughing. That's what you'll miss. That's what you'll miss. So when you work, work hard, and when you're done, quit completely. And if you have a boss that won't let you do that, find a different job or talk to that boss and say, if you're gonna have me on the clock, I need to be paid extra. You don't get to expect me to be on call 24-7 and only pay me 40 hours or whatever it is. So that might mean you take a job where you make less money. There are certain jobs I will not do. Even if I were not to be at Parkway, there are certain jobs I would never take because it's not worth it time-wise. For me, time and happiness is always better than money, okay? Always better than money. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to answer some questions by uh, Jared Lawson, the, uh, the blonde devil, is going to come up here and uh, give us some questions. So let me pray, and then we will uh, we'll do that. <clears throat> Almighty God, I confess that you are great and that we are not great, and uh, we don't know how to think about work biblically, myself included. There are times I work too hard. There are times I don't work hard enough. There are times I find my identity in my job, and so we need grace. Would you help us enjoy what you've given us, that we can look back after a hard day's work and say, we were faithful. Would we find joy in that? Would you keep us from idolizing our work on the one hand or spurning it on the other? I pray for those that are wives and mothers that they would realize that that is work that glorifies you as well, equally. That a mom shepherding kids glorifies you just like a pastor leading a church. Would you help us believe these things? We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.